are at a good time in our series on Acts where there is a transition in the flow of the narrative. So over the last couple of weeks, um, we've been uh, discussing some dramatic scenes of the followers of Jesus saying things like teaching things and doing things that are very powerful and bold. And so the way it goes a lot of times in Acts is there will be kind of a summary statement of what church life looks like. And then the following pattern is what it's like when that is being lived out. And we talked about in our introduction to this series um, that, that the book of Acts frames itself as a continuation of the Gospel of Luke where Jesus did and taught. And uh, Acts is the church continuing to do and teach the way that Jesus did. And so now we're at this point towards the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 in Acts where there's another summary statement about what church life is like and it'll be followed by more examples, positive and negative, of what the church is doing and teaching to live out those summaries. And then it'll push the narrative forward from there. So let's do uh, our reading. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias paid for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So one thing to point out at this point is that this is the first mention, great fear seized the whole church, of the word church in the, uh, in the flow in the book of Acts. So it's a good time for us to reflect on um, what, how Luke is shaping what it means to be the church in Acts. And in order to do that, we can do a callback to what we talked about when we did an introduction to Acts. And that is the main way that Luke frames what the church is doing uh, as its mission is the church is Jesus on earth. But man, talk about highs and lows in that passage we just read. You had this beautiful picture of what church life can look like, followed by an extremely jarring image of ways in which church life can be so distorted. There, there are many metaphors for what the church is 
in the Bible. And New Testament writers um, have several at their arsenal to help us understand what it means to follow Jesus in community. There are two specific metaphors for church that emerge from this text that we just read that I want to focus on to help us understand what's happening. And then after that, after we talk about these two metaphors, I'll raise some questions to help us think about where we might fit in to this story that Luke is telling about the early church. The first metaphor that I want to put forward is probably one that is easier to understand, and the second one might uh, be a little harder to, to catch on to. And that is the church is family. Now, I think when a lot of you hear this, you could think, oh, that's very sweet, that, that makes sense. That, uh, that image that we just talked about in Acts 4, they all seem really tight with each other, and, uh, and it's beautiful. Um, you could say all those things and say, but that text in and of itself, or to call the church a family, is not particularly challenging. And I think that we, we don't find a statement like that, that the church as a family uh, is challenging anymore because we really don't give that statement its full weight. Because I think when you do, when you make a claim like the church is family, it's one of those things that can offend conservative evangelicals all the way to secular liberals and, and anybody in between. And I will unpack that uh, as we continue talking. Part of why I think it's so challenging is because regardless of religious background, we all carry with us strong ideas about how tight families are. In American culture, especially in television and film, we have these... Uh, these images in mind, right? There's the Godfather movies where uh, the, you know, this famous idea of a, a family being tight where it says, you know, never take sides against the family. There's another more recent example, this uh, television show that many critics argue is the greatest uh, television show in, uh, in modern TV, uh, Breaking Bad, and in that the main character has a massive drug empire, and throughout most of the show, um, he claims that everything he does, he does for his family, and you see the catastrophic ways in which um, that causes his empire to collapse. And then uh, even more recently and, uh, and ongoing is the Fast and the Furious franchise where they did not uh, in the early movies set out to have like a, a um, sociology of family. It's a group of friends who like to do cool car things together. But then as you've watched those movies evolve, they've taken on very much this theme of we are family with each other. And, you know, one of their famous lines in that series is never turn your back on family. And I, the most recent Fast and Furious movie, I think, brings a lot of those issues to the head about loyalty and allegiance. In these, um, you get the, the idea from images like these and the way we talk about family, that family is everything. Family is your primary allegiance. I actually picked some of these examples uh, in particular because all of them involve some varying degree of illegal activity. And I think we even talk about like, you know, families are so tight that they break all sorts of laws for each other and hold all sorts of secrets for each other and do, you know, do illegal things for each other because that's, that's how tight they are. And this attitude towards how tight families are resonates not only with our culture today, it resonated with the first century world as well. 
Uh, in fact, uh, many scientists will point out that this is something cross-cultural and cross-time. Evolutionary scientists offer arguments about how the like sum total of our beings is to propagate and to have offspring and carry on our, our genes. And therefore, the family is the mechanism through which we can do all of those things. And that explains all the ridiculous levels of loyalty that we, we um, you know, grant to our family members. It's against this backdrop of overwhelming allegiance to your family that the early church formed and that Jesus' teachings laid the groundwork for. In the Gospel of Luke, which is the prequel to Acts, Jesus makes many mind-boggling anti-family statements. And Luke records way more of these anti-family statements than the other Gospels. And I want to give you a taste. So here in uh, Luke 14, uh, Luke has Jesus saying, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Later, uh, earlier in Luke, he says, Do you think I came to bring, bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. That's full rhetoric, just laying all out all the scenarios for which there will be division in families. And a little bit earlier in Luke, again, uh, Luke has Jesus in a dialogue. And he says, Jesus said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my own father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Another one, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, this is an example, especially for me, that can be really jarring when you hear Jesus say it. Because it's like, dude, the, the woman was trying to pay you and your mom a compliment. And this is how you respond. This is actually very familiar for, uh, for me. Like, uh, th- this is um, a book, Stuff Christians Like, which I really love. It's actually, uh, and it's, it's a Christian who's poking fun at Christian culture. You can see, like, a, one example of Stuff Christians Like is the side hug. And uh, to avoid sinful forms of hugs. And um, uh, it's actually uh, playing off of a book that came out prior, which is Stuff White People Like, which I also love. May not be for everybody, but just to give you context on where it's coming from. So the author, John Acuff, in Stuff Christians Like, he, he puts words to how a lot of times how I felt when I saw passages like these. He, uh, he describes uh, this scenario as the Jesus juke. And he says, like a football player juking you at the last second and going in a different direction. The Jesus juke is when someone takes what is clearly a joke-filled conversation and completely reverses direction into something serious and holy. The examples he gives to that I think help is he, he once said that he tweeted, whoa, there's a mountain of a man doing push-ups next to the Starbucks at the airport. And then a follower on Twitter replied, imagine if we were that dedicated on our faith, family, and finances. And then he also later on said, I once tweeted about going to see Conan O'Brien live and how big the crowd was. Someone wrote back, if we held a concert for Jesus and gave away free tickets, no one would come. 
So there you go. This is Jesus juking. Now, here's the thing. You know, when you think about like the way that a lot of Christians talk, is, is that what Jesus is doing here? He took some statements that were as simple as, you know, your mom and your brothers are waiting for you outside. And he says, who are my mom and my brothers, but the people who do the will of God. He could have just said, dude, I was just telling you, your mom and your brothers are waiting outside. That's what it is. So what, what is Jesus doing when he makes these aggressive statements like that? Is he, is he, uh, is he trying to do that juke? And I think to help us understand the context of these, these anti-family statements, you've got to realize where Jesus is coming from and where he sees his role in what God is doing on earth. This is about who your allegiance is to. That's why he takes times when people really talk about family to, to flip it on its head and say, who, who, are, who is our allegiance to? It's about how the kingdom of God is breaking into the world. And Jesus sees this kingdom work as urgent and is urgent enough to turn this world and your priorities upside down. That's why he talks about it that way. You know, if I were to have asked you, which of Jesus's social teachings do you think would have been perceived as the most radical for its time? I think there's uh, some common answers that come up. Uh, a lot of people would mention maybe his anti-racist statements. Uh, Jesus um, did a lot of teaching about praising the faith of, you know, the Roman soldiers, of Samaritan people. Uh, you could argue maybe that some of his uh, most radical teachings were uh, what he, uh, his uh, anti-sexist statements because Jesus had women as disciples. He elevated them uh, higher than the societies, both Jewish and Greco-Roman societies around them did. You could argue that. Uh, another one is that uh, his anti-wealth or anti-rich people statements were, were extremely challenging, um, far beyond um, the, uh, what was the status quo at the given time. He spent a lot of time upholding and uplifting the poor and condemning a lot of rich people. Uh, there are many scholars, a lot of whom specialize in uh, the background, Jewish and Greco-Roman backgrounds to the first century, who actually say that it's Jesus's anti-family teachings that probably would have been perceived as the most radical for its time. Because if you think about it, this mantra of family is everything is something that cuts across both the oppressor and oppressed groups and all those people that I mentioned. There are rich people and poor people in those cultures who would have said family is everything, it's all you have. There are Jews and Gentiles who would have said that, and there are men and women who would have said that. These anti-family teachings that Jesus shared were just the right kind of offensive that it would have made everyone upset across the board. And he apparently went out of his way to make statements like these. To me, these kinds of statements have resonated really well, although I know that for a lot of people, they can be threatening. When you hear passages like these, probably one of the first things that you might do is say, well, right, but I have to square that with passages that say, honor your mother and father, and even Jesus told people to uphold that. Paul said that people who don't take care of their families and, you know, in some contexts are worse than unbelievers, things like that. And that's fine. Right. We have, to, we have to have those passages in conversation with these. But when your immediate reaction is to see how you can uh, defang these teachings, like from the bite that they could have, I would say, just let these statements that Jesus makes about family sink in first before you jump to ways in which you can balance them out. 
in my own life, uh, when I became a Christian, uh, it caused enormous rifts in my own family. I used to be a Muslim. It was a cultural and religious um, heritage that I was a part of. It was a huge deal um, for my family when I left Islam to become a Christian. And during that time, whenever it does come up um, that, that this happens to me, uh, I get a variety of reactions. One of the, the most common reactions that I get uh, across the board, whether you're Christian, Muslim, or Jewish, uh, conservative, liberal, uh, along the spectrum, is I often get uh, a lot of people shaking their heads, trying to wrap their minds around how I could have done what I did when it came at such an enormous cost to my relationship with my family. And a lot of times they will say, they will say it as, you know, family is all that I have. I can't imagine um, doing and going through what you went through. And during those times, I mean, what I can say is that, you know, I used to think uh, family is all that I have too. But honestly, during, during the time that I was considering following Jesus, I was reading the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, and I found statements like these of Jesus, these anti-family statements, to make perfect sense. That when it comes to primary allegiances, many of us will have to choose between family and following Jesus. And I was so glad that Jesus went out of his way to acknowledge that that is what it's like for a lot of people, especially people in the early church. Now, many of you will never have to uh, make a decision between the two. Thank God. Bless you. That's awesome. At the same time, I mean, I've talked to people over the years who actually say that because they'll never be confronted with that choice, they wonder what they would do if they were actually presented with the situation to choose between the two. This is a very challenging thing to do, and I, I think that it deserves a lot more discussion than it often gets. Uh, one of the ways that I think it's been talked about in a very interesting way recently is, so uh, on Netflix, in season two, Master of None, there's a comedian, Aziz Ansari, the show is, uh, uh, you know, written by him. And uh, season two just came out recently. And there's one episode in particular called Religion. And it works through this dynamic where in, in the show, Aziz Ansari is a Muslim and his, uh, well, he, he was raised with a Muslim heritage. Uh, he is not religious at all. Uh, uh, you know, as, as an adult, his parents are somewhat, and he has relatives who are coming in town who are much more devout than even his parents and especially more than himself. And the whole episode is about navigating these dynamics of, uh, how much do you act like you are as religious as your family members want you to be? Um, there's in particular, they deal with the fact that Aziz Ansari loves pork and Muslims can't eat pork. And there's just this whole less crisis of conscience that he goes through on whether to eat pork at all, like earlier in his life, and then whether to do it in front of his parents or not. And it's just, it's really interesting. I highly recommend watching that episode to get a glimpse on how challenging those dynamics are. One of the things that struck me was that kind of by the end boiled down to like between Aziz Ansari and his parents was a don't ask, don't tell policy, where it's like basically, you know, you can eat pork. I would rather in my mind believe that you didn't. So at least don't do it around us. I actually got a lot of advice like that when I first became a Christian from Christians and Muslims and people of all different backgrounds saying, you know, why... Why did you have to tell your parents that you had made a decision? Isn't it possible that you could have preserved family harmony by 
you know, do, doing Muslim rituals and practices at times that you needed to. Uh, and then you can be a Christian in your personal or private life. Uh, it didn't have to be a conflict. You didn't have to create this situation where, uh, where you had to choose between the two. And again, uh, who knows? If, maybe, if I hadn't been reading the Gospels, maybe that would have seemed like a viable option. But after reading Luke and Acts, I, I would tell them, I, I can't. I, I can't, I can't uh, be something that I'm not, um, especially when it comes to following Jesus, and I can't pretend to be something like that. But not everybody makes that decision, as you can see from you know, uh, examples like TV shows like Aziz Ansari and the advice that different people gave me. You know, uh, during this time, too, there was one passage in particular that I kind of used as an anchor point. That's one of the, uh, it's, it's the last uh, anti-family statement that I'll share with you to help us transition. So Luke, uh, later from, those, from the passages that we previously read, says, has Jesus saying, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Where in this age do people who've lost families for Jesus find family that'll last with them even in the world to come? This is not just a statement of, I understand that you lost your parents, um, when you get to heaven, after you die, you will have many other family members with you. No, that's not what Luke is saying. It's, it is, he is saying that this kind of community that you will experience in the world to come is something you will begin to experience now. So for Luke, that raises the question, where does that happen? And obviously here for Luke, the answer is the church. So when we talk about the radical generosity and love that the early church members gave to each other, it's in this context that Luke is saying, think about how their family, think about how they share. Because Luke is presenting a vision of a church family that really looks like all of the diversity that comes with following Jesus as a family. There is a Freakonomics podcast that, that uh, I love listening to. And one of the episodes that they had was, uh, should children pay back their parents uh, for raising them? And, you know, they take this beautiful perspective as what they call cold-hearted economists, where they really do deconstruct every kind of institution we hold dear and really ask ourselves scientifically, what can we say about these phenomena? And, they, and family is, uh, is subject to that same level of scrutiny. What's really interesting is that you hear economists who work on questions like this, and the reason that it matters in practical cases is because when you have lawsuits between families and people are you know, suing for damages or um, uh, you know, they, they want restitutions for various things, and then economists actually have to think about like, how much various family members owe each other for things that they've done. But then what's interesting is you ask them, like, hey, what, just in general, what do you think like, about, about these principles? A lot of them will say, look, as a cold-hearted economist, I can calculate that for you, but there's there's just something that feels deeply evil about even asking the question and thinking about it that way. And, you know, when you listen through, like, where they're all coming from, I think it's, it's something that we all share. There's something that just feels weird about putting a monetary value on the way family members lovingly sacrifice for each other, right? That is the kind of love 
that Acts has in mind, right? That it's that when it's your family members, you don't really keep track of how much you've given whom and how much you should get back and by when. That's what they're doing here. Uh, Luke even says like, hey, these are things that you can do or not do. It's up to you. These are things that they're offering as free will uh, by themselves to say, this is how much I love my community. This is what I'm going to do for it. So with this beautiful image comes this uh, shocking contrast. And we're going to have to talk about that now. So about Ananias and Sapphira. You know, after that, the summary we read, there was one positive example that was Barnabas um, who sold his property for, for the church. And then there was this negative example uh, about Ananias and Sapphira. And uh, you could wonder what metaphor about church can help us understand what on earth is going on in the Ananias and Sapphira story. And uh, before we answer that question, I think it helps to pull up the relevant background information because what's happening with Ananias and Sapphira might actually sound familiar to you. The, uh, in, in the early time in Israel's history during their genesis, there was a scene where uh, Aaron's sons offered what the text calls unauthorized fire in the sanctuary. When you read the context, it turns out that they were probably drunk when they were doing it. And Aaron's kids, uh, they die as a result of that. What about when, after Israel destroyed Jericho, uh, Achan, an Israelite, took some things that should have been consecrated to the Lord? That's how the text describes it. So they were not supposed to take these uh, spoils from when they conquered Jericho, uh, but Achan did, and he gets executed uh, as a result of it. How about when the Ark of the Covenant is being transported to Jerusalem? This is one of those stories where King David and his team are carrying the the Ark of the Covenant. And then while they're transporting it, the Ark gets a little wobbly. And one of the men who are carrying it has to reach out and grab the Ark itself to steady it. And he gets struck dead. And um, at, in the moment, David's reaction is probably like what yours would be, which is, why, why did you have to do that, God? And then uh, when uh, Chronicles uh, revisits that story and has had time to interpret that story, they talk about how that it wasn't because the guy tried to keep the ark from falling on the ground. It's that by the time they had reached their, that point, they had already showed in many ways that they were not taking the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant seriously. And that's, that's why it happened. That's how they understand it later on. And how about when King Isaiah breached the temple to offer incense. So this was a scene where um, he, he, he just like went into the temple uh, against the laws and against the, the desires of all of the priests to offer, uh, to offer the sacrifice. And then the priests actually try to stop him. And Isaiah gets angry at them in the process. And then he gets struck with leprosy until the day that he dies. So here are a series of examples that in many different ways are uh, echo what's going on with Ananias and Sapphira. And so looking at these, you could still be wondering, what is the common thread that runs across all of these, uh, including the Ananias and Sapphira story? So just think about some of the common threads that you might see above. We're talking about sanctuaries, things being consecrated, uh, things being set apart. We're talking about the ark, God's holy presence, things like that. 
with uh, Ananias and Sapphira, Peter asks each of them one question before they get struck dead. And uh, I want to bring those two questions back up. So first to Ananias, he says, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? That's what he says to Ananias. And then Ananias dies. And then a little bit later to Sapphira, he says, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? The common theme across these two questions is the way Luke frames what Ananias and Sapphira are doing is that it's an affront or a lie to the Holy Spirit itself, to God's presence. When you tie what's happening here together with what's happening in those Old Testament passages, the common theme that runs across all of them is what's happening is, is that the church is a temple. Paul, the apostle, Luke's traveling companion for a lot of uh, Paul and Luke's journeys, says something in 1 Corinthians 3 that kind of encapsulates what we're talking about here. He says to the church in Corinth, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Now that, I think, is, is as provocative as the, uh, the stories that we've been reading so far. And I understand that, like, even reading this for some people might still sound extreme uh, and may, you know, still leave with you with questions to grapple, which is fine. But at the very least, what we're doing is we're getting our head around a good metaphor for what it means to be the church that can at least help you understand the dynamics of what are happening in this story with Ananias and Sapphira. And uh, I, I think that there's a, there's a level in which it's understandable for us to shrink back when God does something so powerful and so jarring. But at the same time, I mean, the early church was shaped by God doing very powerful and jarring things. There's a, a favorite scholar of many, many of us here, uh, N.T. Wright who I think has captured this really well in his commentary on the, the book of Acts. And here is, here's how he describes it. He says, we don't like these stories, of course. And then this one, he's referring to those Old Testament passages that I gave as examples. So he says, we don't like those stories, of course, any more than we like Acts 5. But we can't have it both ways. If we watch with excited fascination as the early church does wonderful healings, stands up to bullying authorities, makes converts right and left, and lives a life of astonishing property sharing, we may have to face the fact that if you want to be a community which seems to be taking the place of the temple of the living God, you mustn't be surprised if the living God takes you seriously. Seriously enough to make it clear that there's no such thing as cheap grace. If you invoke the power of the Holy One the one who will eventually right all wrongs and sort out all cheating and lying, he may just decide to do some of that work already in advance. I think that's sobering, and it's worth thinking about when we think about what's going on with Ananias and Sapphira. So to, uh, to kind of bring it home for us, we've got our two metaphors down that I think help us understand what's going on in Acts 4 and Acts 5. Church is a family and the church is a temple. Uh, for this last part, I really just wanted to raise some questions for us to consider um, for what it means uh, for us to find ourselves in these stories that we're reading today. And that is, Spark Church is. And where do we fit in these uh, themes of family and temple? So let's talk about family first, then we'll talk about temple, okay? So for Spark Church as a family, 
uh, one of the things that I want to call out that I think resonates very well with the church uh, that's described in Acts so far is that our Spark family is ethnically diverse in a beautiful way, in a way that really does reflect what's happening on the ground in the book of Acts. I sometimes wonder if we extracted 115% of the diversity that Palo Alto has to offer, because it's not that ethnically diverse. And yet here we are. If you look at all of us, it's, an, it's incredible that this is how we came to be. Um, this is one of the most beautiful ways that we communicate what it means to say there are bigger allegiances in life than biological family, right? Than who you're related to, than just having offspring and propagating your own kind. You know, people often say, like in, in praise of families, blood is thicker than water. And I always want to say spirit is thicker than blood. And I think that's, uh, that's embodied here uh, in our church community. What's really uh, what I really love about the way that we do ethnic diversity at Spark is that it's not just ethnic diversity in our membership. It's in our leadership as well, which in a lot of American church structures, it's really hard to do, especially because a lot of uh, churches that are multi-ethnic in membership often end up being white in leadership because it's kind, it's kind of treated as like the default ethnicity that maybe like won't offend any particular group, but obviously that's not true. And so one of the things that, that I loved about Spark when we first encountered it was that it's diversity, ethnic diversity all the way through. It's really beautiful. And our friends have commented on that when they visited with us and they were talking about the diversity of the skill sets that our, our leaders have and uh, coming from various ethnic backgrounds. And I, I joke that, oh, like you think that's impressive. I will raise you one. We're so diverse. We have an Asian American in leadership who's not good at math, if you can imagine that. I'm, I'm talking about Pastor Kevin. I'm, and I'm kidding. I don't, I don't actually mean that. I'm actually basing it on the fact that, so I would not say that about Pastor Kevin. He, he could have great math skills for, for all I know. It's that one of the high school kids in our greater community once said, for an Asian, you're not very good at math. And uh, I have no idea whether that's true or not. But if it is, that adds to the diversity of, of our group. We are busting stereotypes in so many ways. And, uh, and it's even interesting for me to think about how our pastoral leadership has no straight white males in it. Think about that. Think about the, the pastoral team here. Like that is a that means the man is not represented in Sparks leadership. I, like it is baffling, especially because the man is the leader in so many churches uh, in, in America. And I, this is, this is fantastic. Nothing against the man. Many of my best friends are the man. So please don't, uh, don't bring that on to me. I'm just reflecting on the full ethnic diversity that we have to offer. So this is fantastic. This is something that I love that we cultivate. And I did, I had to say all of this first because now for the, for the maybe not as fun stuff. So this is uh, the most uh, ethnically diverse church that Christine and I have ever been a part of. But it is also the least socioeconomically diverse church that we've ever been a part of. And by that, I mean uh, in terms of income, uh, education and career. That's what we mean when we say socioeconomics. And uh, so, you know, probably many of you, your first instinct is understandable is to be defensive. And you're already thinking, well, I've got several reasons for that, why that would be the case. First of all, you have to understand what Palo Alto is like as a whole and think about the context in which we find ourselves in. Think about Silicon Valley. Think about what it takes to be here and all that kind of stuff. And I get it. 
I understand. I'm a social psychologist by training. It is my job to know about the forces that shape us beyond our intentional control for why we end up the way that we end up. I get it. What I'm asking is, even so, even so, there are all these forces that caused us to be so similar to each other in socioeconomic status. We can ask ourselves, is that something that we're okay with? Is that something we want to do something about? Because you can ask yourself, is there, are there perspectives that we're missing when we have a church where basically everybody kind of looks at money the same way and treats money the same way and has the same types of, uh, you know, upper middle class problems? And, and I just wanted to raise that for us to consider. Uh, and also in terms of family, another thing that I want to ask just to, to raise questions is, would you say that we know each other like families do? Do we hang out like families do? And again, I know there are like, you'll say, well, the kinds of schedules that it takes to live in the Bay Area is very hard. People uh, have lots of extracurricular activities. Say many of us are commuters. They don't, we don't even live in the Bay Area. A lot of us have schedules where we try to, to manage things remotely. We listen to the Spark podcast. We love the church, but we just can't be there all the time. I get it. I know. But still, we can ask ourselves, when you read about the family that you see in the book of Acts, in passages like we read today, do you see us being as tight-knit in each other's lives, eating together, hanging out day in, day out, as a primary allegiance above our nuclear families? Do you see that playing out here? If you do, how can you magnify that? And if you don't, what can you do about it? All right, about temple. So usually when you think about, when, when a lot of Christians talk about temple as church, like the church as a temple, it ends up leading to conclusions like when we're all together together as a church, we have to take it seriously because after all, I guess if you worship wrong, the Lord might strike you dead. And, uh, and we say like, that's right. So temple, the church as a temple means dressing up for church, being quiet when the preacher is talking, not eating or drinking or dancing. You come here, you're ready, you're serious. It's like school. That's, that's what it means for us to treat this seriously like a temple. If that's true, our son would be struck dead in church. Like if that's actually how, how temples work, my goodness, his, his main way of understanding Jesus is through dancing. So that, that's just, uh, it's mind boggling to have been a part of movements where it's that, it, you know, like those, I guess, uh, uh, overly emotional forms of, uh, of expressing love for Jesus and church community is not taking, taking it seriously. I love, I love that Spark does not, that not only uh, doesn't embrace that way of looking at church as a temple, but actively tries to subvert it. Because in the early church, the way that they were living, it was not, uh, you know, things like dressing up or um, not eating or drinking together when you're in community, things like that were not on their radar. And they're not in our culture today. That's not to say that at different times and in different cultures, um, dressing up a certain way for church, you know, had its place or had its value in helping people take the community seriously when we were together. That's fine. It's just that doesn't seem to be how a lot of Christians and non-Christians in America, uh, you know, uh, understand taking Jesus seriously today. And I love that we're that way. I also love, uh, in terms of temple, you, you think about Spark and the, how open it is and how much it values authenticity. When we read those stories with Ananias and Sapphira, 
the big offense to Peter and to Luke about what they did was that they lied to the Holy Spirit. They misrepresented themselves. They presented themselves in a way that wasn't really true. And that is very dangerous because if we're not going to be real with each other, this whole community thing is not going to work. We can't be a temple of God and we can't be a family together. Of all the churches I've been in, Spark is the one that I have felt the most comfortable being my true self, where I don't have to censor my views on things. Uh, there's, you know, just this acknowledgement that we're all working on things together and uh, that, that there's a safe space for all of us. But I know that a lot of Sparkers don't feel that way or don't feel that way yet because for, for a lot of good reasons. You might be coming from a community in the past by which you were burned, where you thought that um, you actually had community and then you found out that, um, that there are people who don't really have your back and that it turns out that you can't actually express your true thoughts and feelings about so many things and that uh, you were only uh, a part of that temple for uh, as long as you were holding back your, your true self and your thoughts. And, um, and I, I understand you feeling that way. And what I would just say is that um, for those of us who do find, already find Spark to be a safe place, what can we do to increase that openness and authenticity with the Sparkers in our midst who don't feel that way or don't feel that way yet? And this can be challenging. A lot of us don't know each other that well. Many of us came from a church background where we were from large churches where, and I know many of you have said this, came from a large church background where it was common to... Uh, like see several people every week, but not necessarily know their names and be okay with it. In some churches, especially bigger ones, that works. Does that work for us, for a, you know, a community of, of people of our size? Can we really say that we are as open with each other and honest with each other and um, representing ourselves in raw or real ways uh, as we can be? And I get to, there are other factors. Spark is, uh, because of how, welcome, uh, how welcoming we are to people of all different kinds, we have a lot of introverts at Spark who, uh, you know, they, it, for many reasons, want to reach out, get to know other people, but just the motivation is not there for them to actually try to do it, even though they would otherwise find it a very enjoyable experience. I get it. But even so, again, this is what I'm saying, even so, taking in all of these challenges into consideration, is there something worth considering about how we can be more of what you see uh, in Acts? So in closing, I just want to emphasize that these questions that I'm asking are as much for me as they are for you. Because for all of my anti-nuclear family rhetoric that I love Jesus for, what did I do? I got married, had a bunch of babies, bought a house in the suburbs of the San Francisco Bay Area, right? And for wherever Christine and I came from in the Chicago area, we are as upper middle class now as most of you here. And for all I talk about how it would be great if more of us knew each other, my introversion keeps me from wanting to introduce myself to 
people that I don't know just as much as it does for so many of you. So what do I know about what I'm talking about today, right? That's fine. We're in this together. The reason I still thought that it was worth bringing all of these things up, even if I am uh, uh, as much in need of a contrast with Acts 4 uh, and my own church experiences as you are, I still thought I could brought up because I'm confident that we together as Spark community can deal with these kinds of questions. After all, that's what families do. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for bringing us together. Thank you for Jesus who knits us together in profound ways and is always challenging us and surprising us um, to reflect more deeply on what it means for us to belong to each other. You are so good. Thank you for giving us family. Thank you for giving us the presence of your spirit in our midst. We pray that you always be patient with us and never abandon us and always be working in us and through us in love and mercy to make us together more like Jesus every day so that as a group we can reflect your kingdom. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, come quickly. It's in your name we pray. Amen.